Blog Talk Radio. glad you're joining us again today. Oh, yes, I'm very glad you're joining us again today because we're going to have one of my favorite people on to talk about a subject that's very dear to my heart. It's a deeper understanding of the relationship between the mind and the body, mental processes, belief systems, emotions to physiology. This is a relationship that has been long known uh, literally for hundreds and even thousands of years, but has gotten eclipsed by a lot of modern medical thinking and has been very much lost, but revived by people like my guest today, Isabel Benares, who has been working with this relationship in a very effective, essentially psychotherapeutic way for a number of years, both in France, New York, and L.A., where right now she's primarily centered. Uh, We'll be talking about this relationship and the way to enter um, a space of understanding, of empathy, of relating to both one's feelings and one's mind in really a very creative way, which opens up the possibility for healing that goes far beyond, in my view, um, the standard conventional medical thinking about even some very serious kinds of illnesses. The illnesses themselves don't matter by name. What matters is getting to the emotional conflict beneath those illnesses, and then voila, some form of magic happens. It's like unlocking a lock with a magical key when all of a sudden stress is released, understanding and insight is realized, and the kind of things that happen that we'd like to see begin to happen. So it's really my pleasure to have Isabel on with us. Just so you know, her own background is rather extensive. She is a neurolinguistic programming master practitioner and a trainer as well. And she's also trained in the science of biological decoding. She founded the Bioreprogramming Institute, and she studied with two of the leaders, the trainers of of, uh, NLP, John Grinder and Robert Diltz. And uh, I know Robert Diltz from many years ago, and he's just one of the outstanding uh, figures in all of neurolinguistic programming. She's done a lot of training both as a therapist as well as, interestingly, an actress and a dancer. So her 
background is really very varied, and she brings all of it together in sort of a, a wonderful and unique gestalt, allowing her to very much reach into the heart and mind of a client and help them in a really very creative and gentle way to work with their own lives, their own story, and their own challenges in ways that really can help to turn around, as I said, even some of the most challenging kinds of illnesses. So, Isabel, welcome to A Better World. Bienvenue. Absolutely. Let me sh make sure that this is working properly. And there we go. Voila. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And bienvenue encore. Okay. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here and to be talking to you today in New York. It's Good. always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> Isabel and I know each other for a number of years now because my organization, A Better World, sponsored workshops of hers here in New York, so she's really quite well known here in New York City as well as in LA, and a lot of it is with uh, through the workshops that we ran for some years here, where practitioners and ordinary folks alike came and learned from you, Isabel, and the wonderful confluence of your work in bioreprogramming and NLP coming together, and I've watched the difference that's made in people's lives, so... I have to say to you, merci for that as well. So, <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. Of course. So, if you would, why don't you start with just define for our audience bioreprogramming. What mm -hmm. is it? Well, bioreprogramming is a wonderful tool that permits to do um, several things, and one of them is to understand the connection between an illness and the emotional conflict associated to it. Once we um, know that... So, in other words, you're... There's a presumption there that underneath every illness is an emotional conflict. Yes, absolutely, and I'll, I'll elaborate on that. Um, and at the same time, once we know what um, the illness is connected to and what it represents, the meaning of it, then we have wonderful tools that permit to change the perception, and we'll talk about that too, that led someone to an emotional stress that they were not capable to manage at some point, which created an illness because the stress went to a high level, mm. a level where um, because they could not meet their vital needs, an illness became a solution to that conflict. So it permits at least code, a temporary solution. At least a temporary yeah. solution to a conflict. Right. Yes. So we know much more about the origin of illness now, um, and uh, there are some ingredients in order to trigger an illness. An illness does not come out of the blue. Um, that's why you have young people who can have illnesses. You can have people that lead a very healthy life and don't smoke and don't drink who can get an illness. And so what is the cause? What is the reason behind it? And so bioreprogramming permits to understand that and to find the factors associated to it, the emotional factors. And we can go from the moment of trigger to the programming moments of our lives that relate to the illness as well as to what happened in the womb. Programming moments meaning? Programming moments meaning the impacts that happened in the past which uh, we imprinted at a cellular level that can simply be um, reactivated because of a specific event. So in other words, what we typically would refer to as a traumatic moment 
but it could be lesser degrees of trauma even, you could call it, I guess, a dramatic moment, a moment that had specific impact on the nervous system. Exactly, yes, okay. with a memory associated to it and yeah. the belief system and a very specific perception that has been reiterated um, later on and brings back the entire iceberg that is connected yeah. to uh, the triggering moment. The subconscious programming. Exactly. Thank you, Dr. Freud. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Yes. So we could say what is an illness? Well, you know, we all have problems. We all have conflicts. We have stresses every day, daily stresses. But sometimes we have stresses that we cannot cope with. Those are the stresses um, that are so difficult, such as, I don't know, the loss of a loved one maybe or the loss of a job, um, something that happens where in our psyche we don't have an immediate solution to fix it. We don't see a door. We don't see an, an outcome for ourselves. We don't meet our needs. And a way out or a way through. Exactly. Mm-hmm. A way out or a way through. And um, when that happens, we stay for a long time under the control of the sympathetic nervous system looking for a solution. What does that mean to stay under the control of the sympathetic nervous system? It's a fight-or-fight response. It's when our level of stress is so high that we keep on looking for a solution and maybe we don't eat, maybe we don't sleep, we don't rest, we don't recuperate, and we never attain um, a, a, a state of wellness, of recuperation, that would permit to lower the stress. So when that happens, um, the brain, the subconscious brain, has to find a solution to permit us to survive the stress. Because if we were to stand the, the control of the sympathetic nervous system for too long, we would not survive. I don't know if that ever happened to you in the past to have a stress uh, that makes you forget about the environment. Well, so far I've survived. Yes, you have survived. <laughs> but all but of not us... Not without difficulty. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes that happens that we feel that we cannot really manage uh, even being in the world because we should have an accident because we are dwelling on a problem that we cannot solve. Yes. So Actually, I do know what that's like. I have been injured uh, a couple of times in my life, living in New York City, Isabel, and going out on the street, feeling so vulnerable at those times. I think it was in my late 20s, early 30s, something like that. And I went, oh, my God, if you cannot keep up with this pace, you could get knocked over, mm-hmm. and nobody would look twice at you, possibly. Mm-hmm. Well, that was the conversation internally. And I felt that vulnerability of what it would be like to mm-hmm. really be handicapped or mm-hmm. disabled in an environment like this. So yes, yes. I have a sense of it. Yes. And so it's sometimes we're consumed emotionally by a problem, even if we're not injured physically, just being in the world. Definitely becomes very challenging, and the brain has that understanding, that knowledge that um, the environment is hostile still, and uh, danger it is has around. The memory it has the memory when we were in the jungle, and they refer to this as the urban jungle. So yes, absolutely. Not that far away. And even before that, um, you know, when we were, um, you know, at the beginning of the evolution, it was dangerous. So. We find a solution um, subconsciously when consciously 
we don't have access to a satisfying solution in our psyche. And so the brain, because the brain is making sure that we stay alive for the next moment, is going to trigger something in our body to help us. What I mean by that is, you know, when we dwell on a problem, we um, lose nutrients, our heart rate is accelerated, um, and if we don't sleep and we don't eat, we could die of exhaustion as well, not just inadvertence, but also exhaustion. Mm -hmm. So the subconscious brain will provide a solution internally because it cannot go in the world and fix our problem. If a man has been fired, the subconscious brain cannot do anything for that if the man does not find a solution. Now, internally, depending on the meaning we give to our experience and the mental representation we have of it, the brain will get enough information to solicit the very organ that can provide a solution in the form of a metaphor directly related to solutioning the problem that mm -hmm. we have in the psyche. As in solving. Yes. As in solving, uh -huh. exactly. Um, so if someone is fired and they cannot swallow what their boss did to them, maybe they're going to trigger something in their throat. If someone cannot digest what was done to them and feel in terms of digestion, maybe they will trigger something. They could something. have a stomach problem. They could have a stomach problem. Colon problem. A colon problem. They cannot, exactly. Or if they cannot evacuate what happened. Right. So... Um, it depends on the perception and the mental representation and the felt experience associated to the mm, problem. That's a very important point, the felt experience. And it's unique. Everybody is different. And for the same event, everybody is going to have a different perception of it. That's why, of course, not everybody is going to get sick for the same reason. And sometimes some things that seem tremendous for someone to go through will be okay for someone else because maybe they have a memory, a knowledge of how to find a solution for their problem. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have a memory, if you never went through something like that and you're caught off guard, um, isolated during a high moment of stress, then eventually the brain can trigger a solution in the body. So it's interesting, implied in a lot of what you're saying, Isabel, is this idea that the brain itself doesn't distinguish between what's thought, what's imaginary, what's virtual, or really what's metaphorical. Yes. The brain does not differentiate it, and it's interesting if you think about um, the story that I actually often give during my seminar, if you imagine a woman um, who is sleeping peacefully and all of a sudden there's a noise in the apartment and she thinks that it's her cat. She's going to feel quiet and go back to sleep. But it keeps on going and maybe she realizes the cat is right next to her so it cannot be her cat. All of a sudden her imagination uh, will tell her that maybe there's uh, someone in her home and she's getting very scared. Her entire body, her entire physiology, everything is going to change. She's going to be sweating a heart rate is going to be accelerated. Anxiety. Anxiety. She's going to get up and go figure out what's going on. But maybe she can barely breathe. She's so scared. Now she figures out it's the cat of the neighbor that entered the window that was open. Ah, she's relieved all of a sudden. But interestingly, her brain did not differentiate real 
from imaginary or imagination was as strong as if some burglars entered the house, but it was in our imagination only. So very often, and I see it with clients, when people imagine the consequences that could happen because of one conflict that they have, and it didn't even happen yet, just the idea of the consequences will... What if? What if, exactly. Mm -hmm. Then the level of stress will go very high, and they can trigger an illness based on what if. Absolutely. We are speaking with Isabel Benares on A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. I'm very glad that you're joining us again today. Remember to visit us at our website at www.abetterworld.tv and join the newsletter if you haven't already. And kick around and tune in to our weekly TV show as well every Tuesday evening at 10.30 Eastern Daylight's Time. And now we're going to get back to this fascinating subject of bioreprogramming, essentially uh, the confluence of a couple of different really interesting therapeutic modalities and traditions that Isabel has put together, which provides both a structure of understanding the way we experience life, the way we process it as information, as experience, and if it causes too much stress, what we can do about it. If it causes too much stress, for instance, to become what's called a diagnosed illness, we can use the brain in creative ways using neurolinguistic programming and the like to bring us to another place of inner resourcefulness to make different kinds, different sets of choices that can solve the issues of the stress and the conflict we're experiencing. So, Isabel, again, it's such a pleasure to have you on to talk about. This material reaches everybody. Mm -hmm. There isn't anybody on the planet that doesn't have some kind of emotional stress or emotional conflict, or many of them, actually. And by and large, people keep their stress levels managed, but we know exceptions to that all over the place. In our own families, in our own workplaces, people are suffering mm -hmm. from different levels of tension and anxiety and depression, and they're on all sorts of medications, and when it comes to chronic illnesses, these medications do oftentimes so little. When it comes to cancer, women are having their breasts removed prophylactically, so to speak. I don't know what's prophylactic about that. It sounds like a really bad day in the office to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah. um, it's so sad. And mm -hmm. so I am so much an advocate of the work you do, and I've been a student of yours as well over time, and I really appreciated the input because it's helped me a lot with my clients in helping them understand this delicate and very special relationship between the mind and the body. So mm -hmm. let's bring it around to a specific mm -hmm. kind of illness. Mm -hmm. Let's take a look, for instance, at um, breast cancer okay. and on getting underneath it, so to speak, mm -hmm. and what you have done with clients. Sure. Absolutely. Yes, it's a, it's a methodology that's very precise, and we're very lucky now because um, we have access and, you know, this the, the findings are about 30 years old now, and we have finally access precisely to the meaning of each organ. And if you think about it, it's so logical, because 
what is the breast? It's a good example. What is the breast made for? It's made... Love. Love. Nurturance. Nurturing. Nourishment. Nourishment. Um, protection of the offspring. Correct. Yes. So when would a woman trigger um, breast cancer as a solution to a problem in her life? What needs to happen? Well, it's obviously related to something or someone she nurtures or loves, right? Um, so the breast is directly related to what's called the nest conflict. Maybe she's worried about an offspring, one of her children, but she could also be worried about someone she's nurturing, such as a husband or a sister or a best friend. And interestingly, you know, before there is the offspring, there is the construction of the nest. If um, you look at the birds, for example, it's interesting to notice that the level of estrogen is rising while they're constructing the nest. Mm. And the babies are not even born yet. Interesting. So a woman suffering a problem with her home could be also direct, completely related to her breast. So you would like to hear an example. Well, um, I can tell you about a lady that I saw not long ago who um, had um, a foster child that she loved. And she was applying to be able to become a mom. She wanted to keep him, and she had him for two years. So it's a long time for a woman to, you know, to get to know to a child. To be loving someone. And to be loving someone, mm -hmm. exactly. Care for them, yeah. So for two years, and she had great hopes that she would become a mom. They were very attached. And unfortunately, it didn't work out. And she had to see him go um, back. They to couldn't work it out legally. They couldn't work it out legally, and um, the, the biological mother was able, you know, to work through her problems and, and get the, the child back. Oh. So um, this lady triggered uh, breast cancer. It was actually ductal um, breast cancer. There are two main mm -hmm. types, glandular and ductal, um, after she had to let go of this child. And interestingly, she was continuing to worry about him because she didn't think that his life would be as great being with this other woman. So she continued to work. She was not satisfied. Um, so she triggered that cancer. Uh, I'd like to define the difference between glandular and ductal. Oh, sure. Uh, glandular is a cell multiplication. It's a, it's an illness. It's a tumor that comes during what we call the active phase of conflict. It's when the woman is having the main stress happening um, at so, the moment. At the moment. And so cell multiplication is the solution to symbolically produce milk, to be able to feed. Um, so that could be a woman who is, um, you know, having a child that is dying, and in the moment she wants to be able to help, but she can't. And she feels a sense of maternal impossibility. There is nothing she can do for a child. Mm. Um, now, in case of uh, a ductal cancer, the ducts are permitting to conduct the milk to the nipple so the child can be fed. Mm -hmm. um, symbolically, when a woman feels she wants to nurture, but she's separated from the child she wants to nurture. Um, in biology, there is a solution because the milk cannot be given away, right? Because the child is not close. It's far away. There is yeah. a notion of disconnection. Mm -hmm. So the ducts will... Um, ulcerate so that there is more room in the duct so that more milk can be held 
um, because there's a notion of separation, and it's a different um, type of conflict, although both are conflict related to the nest and, and nurturing. And so in case of the lady that I was talking about, she felt she was now separated from this child, and so ductal cancer was the solution that she found symbolically to help herself. Ductal cancers are found during the healing phase of the illness, while glandular cancer are found during the active phase of the illness. It sounds contradictory, number one, for most people listening, to think of illness as a solution, number one, yes. although you have outlined it, we might have to hear it again, mm-hmm. and number two, that the healing phase would be uh, expressive of what ordinary doctors would considered mm-hmm. considered to be symptomatic of breast cancer. Yes, yes, and that's but that from your view, it's the healing phase. Yes, it's a very interesting point because the ulcerations of the ducts won't show. It's only when the replenishment of uh, those ulcerations happen in the breast that um, the tumor will show because it's part of the healing phase of those ducts. Now. In my practice, I've noticed it's not because someone is attaining a healing phase um, that they are completely healed because, unfortunately, the conflict um, can go back and forth. People can be in a healing phase momentarily and then fall back in their conflict. Uh So there comes the notion of really changing enough of the perception um, about the The problem so that the person will not fall back in the same type of um, you know, beliefs and perceptions that originally triggered the illness. Um, so this lady, of course, needed resources, and she needed to create a new belief system for herself that would permit her to let go, uh, which is what she did. Uh, and she was able to completely heal, fully heal from, mm. from this problem, and although her prognosis was not very good at, at the beginning, um, she realized that... Um, she could trust that her, you know, the young parents of this child um, could grow with them and learn enough so that the child would be safe and also establish the belief system that maybe it was the best or for the best interest of that child to finally be with the biological mother, which is something she resisted for a very yeah. long time. She was absolutely convinced that was not the solution. So, again, even though... Um, when I met her, she was in what we can call a healing phase of her illness. She was unresolved. She didn't feel um, in a state of um, of resolution and that she could get let go, and a lot of work needed to be done. And that's what bioreprogramming permits, is to change all the underlying causes, belief systems, and old memories mm. attached to the problem. So there's a, a very real substantive aspect of Reprogramming and rescripting, you could yes. say, one's memory, one's belief system, one's assumptions, yes. etc. Yes, and a, a lifelong of a model of the world that needs to evolve. Because through each illness, there is a lesson, and we could say, what is illness made for? It's to attain a higher level of consciousness mm. that is going to change Beautiful. each of us and permit us to attain. Um, an awareness we did not have before, and to expand as human beings. So there is a positive purpose, although I know it must be hard for some to hear that, but for you, if you have an illness, 
if you surpass your problem and if you grow, you heal because that's the purpose of the illness. And that involves going back in the past, healing the younger self, figuring out all the portions of your life directly related to the problem of today, and maybe investigating what happened in the womb while mom and dad were pregnant. Before we get into the womb, so to speak, let's just let everybody know you are listening to Mitchell J. Raven on A Better World. We are on every Wednesday on Blog Talk Radio at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. So please come and tell your friends and family and spread the word because uh, it's a happening place where a lot of really good information, a lot of education that is both informative and uplifting. After all, at the end of the day, uh, that's what we do want. We want information and an education that's going to enrich our lives and make us better human beings so we can all participate in our own way in the creation of a better world because, after all, that's what we all want. Today's show, we are spending the hour with Isabel Benares, who is the founder of the Bioprogramming Institute, and we're talking about this delicate relationship between the mind and the body, the emotions and illness, and understanding how to get underneath, so to speak, so we can work on a psychotherapeutic level, on an emotional level, with things that show up in the physical body. Now, this isn't a new idea, but it's not a deeply explored idea, and it's not an idea that's taken very seriously by modern medicine. However, it's been my experience over the course of many years of being exposed to this kind of thinking and using it also in my own practice that I have found that it helps to connect some dots and resolve issues that modern medicine is not doing left to its own devices, not without exception, but using these techniques and this perspective I have found with clients and with students to be deeply rich, and Isabel is one of my teachers, is one of those people in the country that is making a difference in this kind of thinking. So, Isabel, welcome again. Mm-hmm, thank and you. Glad to have you on. What is your website, by the way? Why don't you give it out so we? The website is bioreprogramming.net. Okay. C'est facile. Yes. Very easy. easy. <laughs> okay, good. So now we're about to take a dive into the womb. Okay. And look at some of the subjects that mm-hmm. originate. Prenatal psychology is so important, yeah. and it's often uh, excluded from most conversations about health and healing. Mm-hmm. Yet the word heal comes from the ancient Greek to make whole. And if we're going to be healed, we have to pull together all of the various fragments of our psyche, which get expressed in the various fragments of our biology and bring them back under one roof, so to speak, in a, in a unified field. So do you like that way of putting it? Beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> sure. But, you know, that's one way of looking at and thinking about mm-hmm. what it is we're doing here. You yeah. know? And yeah. So why don't you lay out some of the programming that you mm-hmm. have noted and sense occurs mm-hmm. really from 
the zygote from in conception forward? Yes. Yes, so we could imagine a timeline that goes from the moment where we trigger an illness or one person is triggering an illness, let's say, and then we can go back in time in the life of that person and see all the moments of their life directly related to that illness. We could call that a programming tape. It's a recording that led them to one day trigger a specific illness because impacts already existed um, with problems of the same nature, with the same felt experience. So maybe five impacts, maybe ten impacts, maybe never an illness earlier, and then one day it shows up. But then we could ask ourselves, what would make someone be susceptible to a certain type of perception? What is making them filter the world a certain way? And why do they attract certain circumstances? over and over, why, why is there a repetition sometimes of circumstances um, that are limiting to them and for which they don't really have a solution or maybe they repeat a certain pattern in the same all the time. So I think so, everyone, Isabel, can look into their lives and see, oh, my God, this again, you know, the same kind of man, the same kind of woman, the same kind of boss the same kind of circumstances. Exactly. Why me? Why again? Yes, why a divorce? Why a bankruptcy? Why Why is this coming back all the time? And like you said, the same type of people and same type of circumstances. So um, in the womb, while our parents are pregnant with us, of course they have conflicts. Of course they have thoughts. Of course they have mm-hmm. desires. They have beliefs. And they have emotions. And where are... Not my parents. <laughs> not yours. <laughs> you would not remember. <laughs> I remember in my daily life. <laughs> because I agree with your perspective. <laughs> That's how you can connect to them now. <laughs> exactly. Um, but then, then what happens with that, with those emotions? Well, we are programmed in terms of the survival of the species. And everything we express it's directly related to what needs to happen for us to stay alive. So we could say when our parents have a stress, if there is something that creates stress, the subconscious brain is recording that there is a solution to that stress. And what could be the solution to that stress? I'm just going to give you an example. If a woman is pregnant and she dreams about separating from her husband, that's all she wants, but she can't because she has... Uh, two little ones, and this is her third child, and she doesn't have enough money. She cannot take care of herself. She doesn't work. He works. But he's having affairs, and it's not pleasant for her to stay with him. She dreams about separation. What is the solution to such a stress? Separating. Separating would alleviate the stress of that woman. But unfortunately, she cannot do it. Now, she's going to give birth to a child. She's caught. Uh, without a solution. Mm-hmm. But the brain records what the solution would be, what the ideal solution to eliminate the stress would be. Because remember, at the beginning of our conversation, we said the brain wants to eliminate the stress at all costs. It is the way we can survive in the world. High level of stress equals danger and potential death. So the offspring is already programmed with the solution of the stress of the mother. 
And interestingly, if it's a girl, she's going to attract all the men. She's going to be able to separate from so that she every time liberates the stress of her mother. And she will not know it, but she will spend the rest of her life expressing a solution to what we call the project of her mom Mm -hmm. who wanted to separate. This was found by Dr. Mark Frechet. Um, he was a psychologist, actually, Mr. Frechet, mm-hmm. in France. And um, he made those connections and figured out the various um, we shape, you know, our lives are shaped during what's called, what he called, the project purpose. Mm-hmm. And so when our parents have a project, we express that project. When our parents have conflicts, we can repeat the conflict or express a solution to those conflicts. We can do it through behavior or we can do it through an illness. Now, if you imagine a woman who is losing enough spring... Behavior attitude in yes. an illness. Yes, exactly. Um, imagine a woman who is um, pregnant and loses enough spring. That's creating the nest conflict we talked about earlier. Now, she may not trigger a breast cancer, but the baby in the womb, the embryo, is downloading the stress related to the nest. And nurturing is the solution for a maternal impossibility of a woman who is, has lost a child or is mm-hmm. losing a child. Mm-hmm. So later on, maybe that child will express breast cancer as a solution to the conflict of the mother. So we are sometimes expressing a solution to the conflicts of our parents through an illness because that is a solution to their stress. So that becomes really interesting because we have the chance to be able to give back those conflicts to our parents because they don't belong to us. And through the work of bio-reprogramming, we can free ourselves with the tools, the, the, the tools to uh, liberate our psyche from programs that are not ours. So in short, Isabel, the old biblical notion of the sins of the father are visited upon the son, which of course has a clear moral notion to it, can be translated into this way of thinking to say the unresolved emotional conflicts of the parents become the project purpose of the offspring. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. So, in other words, when our parents aren't resolved in their own stresses, mm-hmm. they will get passed on to one degree or another and become, I'll put it this way, the preoccupation, the mental program, mental emotional program of the infant. They don't know whence it came. But they come in, and so a daughter, like you were saying, could find herself in relationships where she feels she always needs to separate. And yes, as you were putting it very well, it's as though she's winning uh, liberation for her mother each time, a victory, so to speak, over and over again. Every time she has a relationship and she leaves, she feels in some part of her nervous system 
that it's a victory. And she doesn't know why. Exactly. Subconsciously, right. Yes. She doesn't know why, but and she feels good. Exactly. And consciously, she wants the very opposite. She's going to want a relationship that yes, works. Exactly. She's going to dream about that. Longevity, harmony. Absolutely. Right. But she will attract a man who will separate from her, or she will attract a man she will separate from, always finding herself in that same situation that is just the expression of what is written in her psyche. We could even say at a similar level, which permits to eliminate the stress of the parent for the purpose of survival. Yes. And it's all subconscious, of course. Exactly. And all of this is being formulated, imprinted first, in the womb. Yes. And, of course, it will get reiterated and recapitulated later, but once, you know, post-womb life, so to speak. But uh, so much of it actually gets formed in the first nine months. And we're walking around, I say to people all the time, that we're walking around in bodies that age chronologically, Mm -hmm. but with hearts, minds, and souls that are oftentimes arrested in its or their development from really infancy. Yes. And you can look at the world and see what's going on, and it really is infantile blowing each other's brains out with armies and wars, and and then we seek to dignify and glorify it in all of our rather fancy, you know, rationalizing ways. But it's nothing but primitive behavior, infantile behavior, that's been glorified and dignified because we don't feel, as a culture, we know what to do about it. But I feel that this kind of work that you are teaching and working with actually offers a solution to this kind of psychic aberrations and confusion. Yes, because bottom line is we need to learn how to meet our needs, no matter what the circumstances are. Does that make sense to you, to go from the micro to the macro perspective? Yes, absolutely, Uh it does. Um, Because all of those programs are animal programs that we carry, Um, we're evolving away from it. species programs. Species programs, and our brain is still old. It's still a subconscious brain that's reacting um, the way we did millions of years ago because throughout evolution, um, we were able to create organs according to the needs in order to adapt to the hostile environment. And so today, when there is no solution in consciousness, our subconscious knows how to pull an archaic solution in order to momentarily save our lives because I must say that once we trigger a solution in an organ, our level of stress goes down enough uh, to where it's compatible with life. And nevertheless, we have now an illness to deal with, with a more clear mind, actually, which will permit us to resolve the conflict. So it's, it's, a, it's a whole process that really permits us to gain more moments of life yes. um, because we don't die through ex- because of exhaustion sure. or inadvertence. Um, you know, it's a beautiful mechanism, but at the same time, it's an old mechanism. Yes, indeed. And it needs to be updated through modern psychology, you yes. know, yes. very interestingly, right? Isn't yes. it? I mean, the whole advent of self-consciousness is relatively new in the evolutionary scheme of things. Yes. So we haven't had a, a self-conscious brain relatively speaking, for a great length of time and really know its operating system. Mm -hmm. We're very much still discovering it. 
Yes, we are. It's yeah. it's it's the beginning, but it's very promising. <laughs> I like that prognosis. Talking about prognosis, I wanted to just circle back for a moment to the woman you were speaking about, Isabel, who you worked with, who had breast cancer, who had had the foster adoption that didn't go forward. Was she also taking regular conventional chemotherapy or any of the medical? Uh, well, in her case, it's a great question because in her case, um, she chose to um, remove the tumor, but she did not accept to do any radiation or chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. And again, as you know, we encourage people to, um, you know, listen to their doctors and we don't interfere. Uh, we want to be present as a support to help them, and also we want to break what's called the diagnosis conflict, mm-hmm. which is the most dangerous oh, conflict. Please talk about that. Well, the diagnosis conflict um relates to the state of fear someone can um, just generate by fearing death, fearing that um, cancer is going to kill them. And once... uh, Or the diagnosis, whatever it may be. Whatever it may be. Cancer is just on the popular hit list these days. Yes, it is. Um, And so someone will block um, any information, um, you know, in their brain just because they are so scared that pretty much she cannot go through them. So the diagnosis conflict um, is the reason why I think a lot of people die because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy when they start believing that cancer is going to get them. It becomes their focus. That's all they think about. Um, and nothing else works after that. Some people are strong enough to not believe that, but it's very hard. Uh, it's a program. Now, it's a program in itself. Exactly. But propaganda is what it really is. Yes. Yeah. Just just the word cancer, um, you know, people are extremely scared. So um in her case, to come back to your question, she was um she, she removed that, that tumor um because it, it was not moving, it was not growing, it was just, you know, there. Um didn't do any other treatment and it's fine to this day. Um so it's 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 a very good result. That is. That yes. really is wonderful. I'd like to circle around uh, also to the subject of perception Mm -hmm. because that is so much the domain of solutions and being oriented toward changing Mm -hmm. one's perspective on the past, on the present, and on the future. Speak to us about the role perception plays and how you help your clients and students shift perception. Mm-hmm. as the domain of solution finding. Yes. Um, we create um, a perception, um, our perceptions, like you were saying before, it's the child talking in each of us. Often I meet people that are in their 50s and they continue to perceive situations the same way they would if they were five. Because they have a trauma at five where they did not have access to enough resources to give it a different meaning. So this could be the child whose father left because they, you know, the parents were not getting along anymore and he didn't say goodbye. He didn't say goodbye because it was too hard for him to say goodbye to his son. Now the son decided, well, this means I'm nothing. This means I'm rejected and I'm not wanted. I'm not lovable. I'm not lovable. When it was absolutely not the intention of the father. Or the truth. Or the truth. The father did not want to do that. Um, the father missed his child. But the thing is, then a model of the world is being constructed 
Uh, and this model is going to be I'm rejected, I'm not important. At 8, I'm not important. At 12, I'm not important. I'm rejected. I'm not loved. At 40, at 50, it's still the child talking. So to change such perception, you have to be able to go back in time and find those moments where um, the writing of the story started and to modify, to show the child the elements that were missed and the real meaning. Interestingly, once we do that, um, the real meaning of the of the action of, of the, the original event of the father leaving the, the house. The father leaving the house, for instance, in that example. Yes. And so NLP is a brilliant tool for that, and it sure. helps us um, modify our perception, go back in time, and um, give resources to our younger self, which we need to nurture every day. Because if we observe ourselves, you can see that every day we're triggered by events. And we have reactions that belong to our younger self. Um, so that we can is change. That's so true. Yes. <laughs> right? <It's> so <laughs> yes. Dauntingly. Right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and then there's another layer I just um, want to talk about a little bit before we go. Yes. It's, um, it's how we're programmed because of our ancestors. Yes. You see, from the moment of conception until one year old, we talked about the project purpose of the parents. Mm-hmm. But, of course, that leads us to understand how we're programmed from one generation to the next. And how each generation can be, um, you know, resolving the conflict of the previous generation and the predecessors. Sometimes it may skip a generation. But what our ancestors went through, our grandparents, our aunts and uncles, will have an impact on our lives. And that's a, that's a whole new chapter. But, again, if we look at an illness, we have to take all those layers. Um, and I must talk about, you know, the discoverers, um, Dr. Hammer, Dr. Sabah, Dr. Frechet, Arnold Sanchez-Berger, concerning... Um, the Magic Square. The Magic Square, which is, um, you know, the, the ancestors and the downloads that the we The ancestors get. and sibling order yes. as well. Sibling order, transgenerational transmission. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, when we look at illness, there are so many layers um, to look at. In order to You're have looking at an entire tree of life, exactly the family tree. The family tree. Things aren't happening in individual modules the way we tend to think of ourselves as an isolated packet of life, like a, a bit. In a in a you know a, a transistor or a computer, we are part of a much larger field of influence, mm-hmm. a much larger context. Please go on. I just wanted to add that. Yes, exactly. And it's almost as if we are healing, um, you know, the limitations of yes. our ancestors. Um, and the more we evolve away from their belief systems, what we could call their mental maps, the more we change in the world. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Working on an illness permits to look at all those layers, and we're talking about illness, but it could be that we're also working on reshaping our lives, uh, working on being able to attain our objectives, um, having our dreams instead of repeating patterns and being influenced by programs of others that um, are related to stories that do not belong to us. Mm. Beautifully put. That's so important. And I know, having been trained in psychotherapy the way I was, in a rather progressive context, still 
the role of the grandparents and the great-grandparents, the larger field of the family, was not taken into account. And here, in this perspective, I feel it very much is. If you do a larger map of the family tree, you will see traits from across the board that start showing up generationally. And yeah, as you said, sometimes it will skip a generation. But this is the way to understand ourselves in context. Yes, and we can understand accidents that are being repeated. We can understand deaths at a certain age that, can, that are sometimes repeated, unfortunately. We can understand um, sometimes seeing the same story happening two, three times, uh, divorces, um, so loss of jobs, for instance. Um, so it's fascinating because once um, we observe it, then it's not acting at the level of our subconscious anymore. Mm, and it does not come back. Conscious. Exactly. And it does yeah. not come back as destiny, as Jung would say. Yes, exactly. So it's about liberating, um, liberating all those stories, liberating all those stresses that do not belong to us, and changing our own perception, um, which is associated to also a past that we can have an impact on. Beautifully put. Before we wrap up, I would like you, if you would, Isabel, to please say a word about the subject of the genetic transmission of illness, mm -hmm. which often shows up in the conversation around breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So women whose mother may have had breast cancer or whose grandmother had are essentially being it may not sound very nice, but oftentimes intimidated by doctors with a fear base to say, you should remove your breasts or mm -hmm. what have you prophylactically so to prevent yourself from getting it. Also, clearly it's in the genes. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. From your point of view, mm -hmm. what do you think of that mm -hmm. and what does your experience tell you? Well, um, there's, a, there's an experiment by Butenik, which is very interesting. He was able to put um, a daphnia, lots of them actually, in a test tube, and their phototropism is positive, which means they are attracted. Daffodils? Yes. You're saying? Okay. They are, yeah, or daphnias, however you want to call them. Oh, okay. <laughs> they are micro shrimps that they are. Oh, micro shrimps. Oh, okay, They are used okay. in. in uh, My mistake, yes. Okay, that's okay. okay. Um, and so if you put them in a test tube, they are attracted to the light. If you put the light at the end of the test tube, they will bump and, you know, be stopped by the end of the test tube. So the solution to survive is going to be to find the exit, which is opposite their program, because they are attracted by the light, not the dark. So if we collect all the winners, the ones that are finding the exit out of the test tube, and we put their offspring in another test tube, and again we create the same scenario with the light at the end of the test tube, the obstacle of the test tube, and then we collect the ones that are able to get out of the test tube and find the exit, at some point one of them will almost directly, after hitting the end of the tube, go opposite towards the dark to get out of the test tube. This one is a mutant. There has been a mutation. Mm. A new program has been installed. What does that mean? It means that, yes, we can find mutations, but what is the origin of a mutation? It's a conflict. 
it's a conflict for survival. So if we go back to breast cancer, what does that mean? It means that if a woman has this gene, it simply means that in her clan, women above her, a grandmother, maybe a great-grandmother, was the first, way before her, to have a nest conflict that she could not resolve and for which a cell multiplication, for instance, glandular, would have been the solution or was the solution, and therefore now it is an available solution in the clan in order to um, be able to solve the problem related to a nest conflict. So at the origin of the mutation is a conflict. Yes. Excellent. So what we know is of what we know as neuroplasticity of the brain, meaning that the brain can learn new behaviors and not be stuck with what happened in the womb. So our genes are an expression also of behavior, and the DNA is changing with the way we live our lives. Yes. The conscious and subconscious choices we make as individuals so it's a two-way street. It's not that there's some kind of genetic program that we are destined to live out, and that's that, but our lifestyle, our choices, are influencing the genetics that we will then in turn pass on to our offspring. Exactly. A whole different way of thinking. Yes, exactly. And hopefully in the future, all of those connections will be made Exactly. And uh, more more people will have a chance to evolve, heal, change their lives. Exactly, exactly. Well, thanks to you and your work and many of our colleagues, a lot of that is taking place. So thank you. thank you very much for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Mitchell. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Mon plaisir. My pleasure. And give your website again. Yes, so you can get a lot of information on the website. It's bioreprogramming. Dot net. Is there a dash or no dash? No dash. B i o r e p r o j r a m m i n g. By reprogramming. Dot net. Wonderful. Well, thank you for your good work. It's really so appreciated. And uh, by myself here in New York and all of the students that we generated yes. over years. And Wonderful. Yeah. Well. So. Thank you, thank Mitchell. You. <laughs> sure, pleasure. This is Mitchell J. Radio for a Better World. I'm so glad that you joined us again today. And I hope this helped to <coughs> illuminate some of the questions that people have about the nature of illness and the nature of mind and the relationship between the body and the mind. And you can see really rather well by what Isabel was sharing with us today what that intimate relationship is really about. It's actually a peculiarity to think that the mind and the body are separate, and there's a whole story about that that I've shared on different programs in the past about, you know, Descartes and others that contributed to this idea of stepping outside nature as though we can do it. We cannot. We are inside the program, and we need to see it and work with all of the elements of it. And then we stand a chance for healing, as Isabel was saying to us, as well as evolution. So on that note, thanks so much for joining us. And visit us at our website, www.abetterworld.tv. Join our newsletter.
become part of a better world community. And uh, come and join us again next week, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And I might be on a few more times a week that's still in the thinking process, and you'll know when it happens, as well as every Tuesday night on television. Join us there, too, at the same website or on Manhattan Television. Thanks again for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.